Hi everyone, thank you all for joining uh, our artist talk today. We're here with Alyssa Taylor Went, my lovely cousin, who is also an artist, a multidisciplinary artist, curator, and filmmaker, uh, very talented. And uh, Alyssa, do you wanna start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Hi everybody, um, my name is Alyssa Taylor Went, and I am a working artist based in Austin, Texas and Detroit. Um, I have been a professional artist for about 15 years. I've had many other occupations in my life. Uh, I've also played in rock and roll bands and owned a vintage store and been an underground film actress. But I have been a practicing artist for a long time. And uh, I am originally from New York. I've also lived in Arizona uh, where I you know, grew up and I uh, lived in San Francisco for a long time. And I've been in Austin and Detroit for the past 10 years. So I started out as a photographer. Um, I started taking photos uh, basically in the eighties because I'm old um, and was very influenced by uh, sort of this hyper realism sort of late night. Um, it's almost like the cinema verite of photography um, started photographing my life and then uh, sort of went on to the other side of things. And like I said, in San Francisco, I was more of a performer. Uh, when I went back to New York, I got my master's degree from Bard through uh, the International Center of Photography. So it was basically a photography program. And then I sort of branched out and started doing films and sculpture and installation and multimedia works and performance art. Uh, so I moved to Austin because I couldn't afford to basically be a working artist in New York, as fabulous as New York is. Uh, so I moved to Austin and I have um, shown internationally um, all over this country, also in Iceland, Norway, Croatia, and Czechoslovakia. I have curated a lot of shows, which means that I gather artists together and put exhibitions together. Um, the largest one I've done was 65 artists and performers in a show about death and transformation. That was uh, three years ago. In fact, Marn was in that show. She was one of the performance artists and actually a visual artist. And uh, then I started making films or basically videos. So yeah, I've just been very busy these last couple of years. I serve on the board of a lot of arts organizations. I am in an art collective called ICOSA, which is a 20 person artist collective in Austin called Icosa because an icosahedron has 20 sides and it's a 20 member artist collective. Um, so we're very active and we do a lot of community-based events. You know, I'm just very involved in the art scene in Austin. Um, I also live in Detroit where I make a lot of my films. Um, I haven't really gotten as active there, but I am um, currently a candidate for a master's degree from Harvard my second master's actually in museum studies because I'm planning on opening a small nonprofit museum of cultural artifacts in Detroit. So I'm a very busy, busy girl, but I love doing um, artist talks and talking about my work. So this is going to be, you know, basically a dialogue. I don't want to listen to myself drone on and on, but um, as Alex knows, I have lots of uh, crazy stories. Oh, yes. So um, I could tell lots of stories. Um, I am going to show you a quick slideshow of my work and talk about some of the more uh, recent projects. And then, of course, uh, Q&A. Yeah, mm -hmm. love Q&A. 
So, um, you know, if you guys have any questions, it doesn't matter how weird it is, please, like you cannot offend me. Um, so I'm happy to uh, bring guidance, amusement, um, intrigue, whatever, what have you. Yeah, that was a great introduction. You do so many, <laughs> so many things that boggles my mind. So I was curious about, um, so you mentioned starting this small nonprofit museum. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you're trying to capture with this museum? Because I know you said cultural artifacts. Could you like expand a little bit upon what exactly you mean by that? Yes, I would love to. Um, I'm very excited about this. This is a sort of a new revelation I've had um, in the last couple of years. I've always been a collector of objects and artifacts. So for um, those of you that know me, I have a lot of weird shit in my house. And, uh, but you know, it's very unique weird shit. So, I mean, everything from Masonic banners to hand carved coffins from Ghana to, you know, folk art snakes to occult books to Victorian hair wreaths to old uh, cinema marquee signs, you know, just really interesting stuff that all talks about popular culture. And when I mean popular culture, I mean from the last 150 years. And so there really isn't a museum to represent that kind of cultural arts to me. You know, there's been a lot of this talk about, um, you know, with Marie Kondo and everything, trying to, you know, find the joy and all of that. And as much as I love making art, the art world and the business of being an artist is really not that fun, as both my mom and Marne can attest to. You know, there is a lot of slog and a lot of hustle and a lot of it's not really about being creative and making art. Um, and it kind of, it gets very frustrating and it really sort of dampens your creativity. So I was thinking about it, like, what do I love to do the most? And really, you know, besides making art, I love to find weird, cool shit at flea markets and thrift stores and show it to people and tell them all about it. And they're like, what is this wreath? It's like a horseshoe. Like, what is that wire? And I'm like, no, it's human hair. They're like, what? And so I tell them all about, you know, how Queen Victoria from England started this period of mourning that was sort of the Victorian era. And it was very common to use human hair um, in jewelry and lockets and tokens and wreaths. And it was woven together. And it was basically the hair of your deceased family or loved one or partner. And you would either wear it like jewelry, or you would display it in your home in honor and memoriam of them, like memento mori. So anyway, I've been collecting this stuff for a long time, and I just thought it would be really great to actually just make an institution out of that and something that would create a legacy, not only beyond my lifetime, I'm hoping this will last for a couple hundred years, but something that's not just about my work. Um, because besides the hustle of the art world, the other thing that's really hard about being an artist is that it forces you to be somewhat of a narcissist, right? You're always like, come to my show, look at my project. This is what I'm doing, collaborate on my thing. And, you know, you're always talking about yourself, which sometimes can be kind of neat, you know, if you're proud of a project, but a lot of times it just leaves you feeling really empty and like you, everything you're doing is not part of a community um, unless you're collaborating or, um, starting projects that are really involve the community. So this was something that I thought could really uh, benefit people, the community. It would serve as a repository for collections. A lot of collectors I know don't have children. 
So what's gonna happen to these amazing collections they have, right? So it'll have themes like a death themed room, hands, Egyptian, you know, all these different themed rooms. There'll be an occult and arts research library, uh, gift shop, and it'll, there's gonna be a huge educational component involving the community in Detroit. Uh, Detroit uh, is 88% African-American and there's a huge discrepancy in the opportunities for people in Detroit. So I really want to open this up to all different kinds of people and get people really involved, have like heritage day and have people, you know, bring objects from their homes and basically teach young people and teach kids about planned obsolescence and how maybe their iPhone is not the most valuable thing in their life. Maybe it's that broken plate of grandma's and that you don't know why the F your mother keeps that broken plate, but actually maybe it was, there's a whole story and narrative that goes with it. That's a sort of a history that's um, more valuable than a material object like an iPhone because it can't be replaced, right? So I wanna try and instill this and have a lot of points of connection for young people through you know, popular culture because there's great museums in Detroit like the DIA, Detroit Institute of the Arts, um, but like the Met, I mean, a 1700s portrait of a wealthy royal family on their estate might be something that a lot of young people in Detroit can't relate to, um, but maybe they can relate to a hand-carved coffin from Ghana. Anyway, so that's it. I wish you were home right now so that I could ask you to like <laughs> go pull some random unique objects off your shelves. So one thing that I'm curious about that you touched on a little bit is, um, how does creativity look different to you uh, in terms of when you're creating art versus when you're curating versus now in this museum endeavor? Like how, how is creativity different in those different realms and what do you find um, enjoyable or less enjoyable about like each of those aspects? Good question. Thank you. I like that, Alex. Um, well, creativity, when it comes to my own work, is kind of a, kind of a slippery mythological serpent like sometimes it's under the water and sometimes it's really terrifying and sometimes it's really beautiful and you don't really know where it is most of the time. So uh, with my work, I just tend to come up with these really random ideas that through trial and error and through sort of puzzling through them, they become formulated into a conceptual project. Um, with curating shows, it's really fun because I feel like I get to use my network of community. Um, I get to use, uh, tap into the resource that is all the incredible people I know in this world. I have a lot of friends who are incredible artists, performers, musicians, fashion designers, you know, whatever it is. So I love connecting people in my network. My mother's always talking about me being the great networker, uh, but I love doing that. And I love being able to give people opportunities that they've never had also use people to work with a theme. So usually when I curate a show, it's not just a show of here's these artists, it's usually around an idea, right? So I take a conceptual idea and I either select work they've already made or I allow them to work with the idea and make something for the show, but it's, it's really great. So I, that feels very exciting and very much like electric, right? Like I feel this current and I'm just the vessel. Like, it's not about me at all. I'm just connecting ideas and people and creating something that will just go into the world and, you know, be what it is. And this show and people can have a dialogue. It opens dialogue. 
And then with the museum, I, I, I really am excited because I feel like this is um, a legacy project. I mean, it's sort of going to be like a Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, it's going to be like my ultimate biggest project, biggest work of art ever. Um, but again, it combines all of those things. There's a little bit of the scary unknown. There is my crazy hobby of collecting all of these things. So there's an intellectual aspect, you know, there's a curatorial aspect. There's a research aspect because really I'm kind of nerdy and I like history and, you know, um, there's a little bit of the magus, you know, there's a little bit of this magician aspect um, where you're sort of creating something behind the curtain, um, you know, and there's a little bit of a social work component to it, you know, and, and a little bit of a sort of urban planner aspect to it. So there's a creativity that really helps. I'm hoping by starting an institution and really opening a museum, I'm not trying to um, make light of that. I really don't know what I'm doing and I'm learning every step of the way and I'm learning just by doing and I will have to raise a lot of money. It's not gonna be easy, but I feel like I'm adding to the cultural landscape of Detroit, which is an emerging city and um, being able to have a hand in, even if it's something that doesn't last forever, even if it's only for a little while, I feel so excited about that. And it seems, it feels like a privilege to be able to try and introduce um, opportunity to a city. Detroit is, um, hard to explain. It's been through a lot. It's suffered a lot. And um, people have a lot of misconceptions, but there is um, a really strange magic to Detroit that I hope to be part of. Love it. I love hearing about uh, like all the, all the interactivity and how you talk about, uh, you know, working with your networks and working with other people. I'm curious when, um, when you're making art, how much do you like uh, like collaborating with other people as part of your process or like what's like the ideal like creation environment to you? Mm, man, love this kid. Your questions are so good. Thank you. Um, so I collaborated quite a bit. Um, this artist collective that I talked about, the 20 person artist collective, we um, do a lot of two person shows in order for everybody to have, to be able to show often enough, we do a lot of two-person shows and most people just sort of split the space up and here's my work and here's their work and you think of a title together. Three shows I've done with Icosa were all collaborative with three different women, Elaine Ealing Shen, Aaron, who is a conceptualist ceramicist, uh, Aaron Cunningham, who's a metal worker, Kate um, Silagi, who is mostly does drawing. So those are three things I do not do at all. And I thought, what better occasion to try and collaborate um, in a totally difficult situation where <laughs> I have nothing in common with them in terms of our process. And uh, I took it as sort of a challenge. Um, so all three of those were very successful and super difficult. One thing I was sort of complaining about the narcissistic aspect of being an artist, but it's actually, part of it is also kind of a luxury because you make all the decisions for your own work. You don't really have to answer to anybody. I mean, people can give you criticism or suggestions or whatever, but ultimately it's up to you, it's your work. And you're the one who says if it's finished or not, if it's what you meant to make or not. And so when you are collaborating with someone and you have to put that ego aside that you didn't realize you even had, 
wow, that's a big wake up call. I see more nodding over there. Yeah. Um, it's a big wake up call because, you know, you didn't realize how much of an ego or how opinionated you were about your process and about your ideas until you have to hear someone say, well, I don't really like that idea. I don't, I don't want to do that. And you're like, what? <laughs> so um, collaborating in that way is hard and it's not really my main, the way I usually work. My favorite collaboration are actually the films that I make. So one reason I started making films was ultimately I'm frustrated with the medium of photography that I started in. And there's nothing like going to a school full of photographers to make you hate photography. <laughs> so there were a lot of people that were just like so precious. So photography is so precious. And, you know. Rachel's a photography major. So I keep looking at her reactions. <laughs> no, she's totally right. <laughs> Yeah, so there's this precious aspect. And, you know, there's also in terms of being a visual artist, if you're a documentary photographer, it's different. But as a, as a visual artist that uses photography, there's a certain aspect of photography that people sort of take photographs of something and then they just sort of sign their name onto it, right? They sort of capture something and then they're like, I made this. And they're like, no, you just sort of documented something that, you know, in this moment you noticed. So I always struggled with this aspect of photography. And so I did a lot of staged photography. So it was like painting with photography. Like I would set up different tableau vivants and different scenes. Um, and it, it just really didn't satisfy a lot of the intentions I had with my art. Um, and so the chair of my master's program is an artist named Nayland Blake, who is a sculptor. And so I was complaining about this to him one day and I said, you know, I want to do this thing. And he said, why photography? <laughs> and I said, well, we're, because I'm in a master's of photography program at a photography school. And he said, so. And I was like, oh, okay. And again, there's the artist part that comes in. You can really do whatever you want. So I started making small videos and sculptures and... Um, you know, tried experimenting with different uh, mediums. Um, but when I really started making bigger film projects, I realized here is a medium that encompasses everything I've done from my whole life, right? Photography, but it's like moving photography, right? And then I used to own a vintage clothes store in San Francisco. So there was the costuming, the wardrobe. Then I was, you know, a performer and an actress. So I knew how to work with the actors and I could incorporate like dance, music. You know, I was a musician. So doing all the soundtracks for my films. So I was like, wow, it suddenly it made sense that, everything I had thought was just sort of a phase of my life was actually, I was gathering all these skills to become filmmaker and I didn't really realize it. So uh, when I work with people, I mean, we're the crew, the cast, the post-production team, there's so many people involved in my projects and I like to think of it as a collaboration. So even though I'm the boss and the director and the writer, I don't necessarily tell people what to do I mean, all the time. Like there was a script, but for instance, it was, it's hard for me to find cinematographers. Most cinematographers want a shot list. So they say, you know, go around the corner, close up from a right angle, you know? And then the second shot is a deeper close up. The late, I don't uh, do my films like that. I have scenes and actions and plans and the actors 
but I actually collaborate with the cinematographer. So I'm like, what do you think? And they're like, well, the light was better an hour ago, but so we have to shoot it from this way now. So they actually helped me create the piece. And some cinematographers or directors of photography were like, I can't work this way, this is crazy. And then I found a few people to work with that were like, oh my God, I feel like I'm kind of making this too. I'm not just a hired gun reading off a shot list, doing what I'm, these exact planned out shots. Uh, I work that way with the whole crew and with the sound guys. And I'm like, what if you recorded it through this in the echo of the bathroom or, you know, like we, we like on the spot, total guerrilla filmmaking. Um, I mean, large crews, but definitely not like this stayed pre-planned thing. It is a huge collaboration where, you know, one bad apple can sort of set things awry, but luckily I've worked with incredible people a lot of my, my actors are not professional actors. They're artists or musicians, and I convince them to be in my crazy films. So on that note too, I, I will explain because when, we, uh, I, when I show you a slideshow, it'll make more sense. So being a photographer, I take what I call staged production stills during the filming of the movie. So I use the locations, the actors and the props and I, you know, set up these staged photographs like I used to do in school, Rachel, that I was talking about, um, but they're of the world of the movie. So most of the time when you see like an art video in a gallery, the stills that go along with it are like screen grabs or freeze frames, you know? So you're just like, oh yeah, I remember that moment. Oh yeah, that was after the guy did the other thing. Oh yeah, that's where they were standing by the tree. But when I take these staged photographs, they look familiar because they're all the same actors and places, but they're actually scenes that you never saw in the movie. So it basically justifies the medium of photography because otherwise, if it just repeated what you saw in the movie, why even show them? You can just show the film. But this way it adds like an extra element to the narrative. So just when you think you've kind of figured out my very abstract, crazy, dark, multi-channel film project, you look at the photographs and it, add sort of like one more step. And you're like, wait, you know, that can change the narrative. Um, and they're very interpretive. So I use a lot of universal um, symbols so that there, there is a through line, but people will all come out of it with a slightly different interpretation. But when I show you guys um, some of my work, the work from the films are not screen grabs or freeze frames, they are staged production stills. But it's also a way, I mean, for those of you that are in school and thinking about being out in the world, if any of you are artists, one of the things about making video is that nobody buys videos, right? Nobody buys an experimental art video. I mean, unless you're a very successful artist and then maybe MoMA, Museum of Modern Art will buy an edition of your video. But other than that, collectors don't really buy videos. So um, the other Good to hang that on your wall. <laughs> right. So the, the other bonus of doing the photographs is that there is a component, um, not so much for me, but also as a, something that appeals to gallerists. They like having something that they can sell, right? This is actually something that uh, we've been, or I've been pushing for us to do a podcast on, is I've been wanting to do a podcast episode on like non-commercially viable art and how how artists are able to, to do those pieces and what kind of restrictions they have around them and how art institutions could be better at allowing for more creativity that would enable some of those types of things. 
So look out for that in the future. <laughs> St- Excellent. Stream what the spark on uh, Spotify. Um, Excellent. Um, <laughs> you should look at Tino Segal. Yeah, Tino Segal is a really good example of that. Actually, the ultimate example, because he does these sort of interactive performative pieces. He has certain contracts, and I, I can't remember. I think they're sort of not available for sale, or they people buy a contract. Anyway, some, something Definitely like that. But, that. but he had a show at the Guggenheim. So mm-hmm. despite having these limitations on his commercial appeal, he has managed to be very successful. One last question before uh, before we go into the um, your your presentation, so people can actually see the works that you're talking about, um, which yeah. is very exciting. Uh, my last question is: uh, I'm curious, how, what unique um, opportunities or challenges have you had living in both Detroit and Austin? Huh? Uh, what unique opportunities in terms of uh, my career? Yeah. I would say I'd like to include uh, New York in this conversation because that's sort of where I started my art career. And um, the advantage of someplace like New York or Los Angeles is that there is an incredible amount of opportunity around every corner. And there's an incredible amount of amazing people to meet and learn from and befriend and support and ask for their support. A huge community of creative, intelligent, fabulous, talented people. Um, The downside of it is that you are one of hundreds of thousands of fabulous, amazing people. I see Martin nodding to this also. So no matter how good your work is, if, you know, it's the luck of the draw, it's who you happen to meet at a party, who you sit next to at dinner, it's pretty random. And, you know, there is still a lot of uh, sexism and misogyny and, you know, racism and all sorts of problematic elements of opportunities within the structure of the art world. But, you know, New York is amazing like that. And it's a great place to live for a little while. Some people I know have managed to break through that barrier and actually show in galleries in New York. Um, My problem was that it was such a hustle um, with having to work and pay your bills and be out every night and supporting all these fabulous people that you meet that I really wasn't making very much work. Um, And so through a matter of circumstances, I sort of accidentally moved to Austin and I found that I could live much cheaper and be supported by um, an art patron and uh, grants. I get grants through the city of Austin, regular grants, and actually starting to build a serious uh, group of collectors there. And it was something that was much more accessible, you know, and I... I I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, it's a little bit like suddenly I was a big fish in a smaller pond, a little bit. And I'm not trying to be a jerk by saying that, but I mean, people were like, oh, this artist from New York. And I was like, where? You know, and I was like, oh, they mean me. So um, it really afforded me a lot more flexibility and in terms of being able to curate shows and serve on the board and thereby also make a difference through um, helping different organizations. I mean, I just was so much more involved in the community and I know everyone in the art community, which, you know, sometimes has benefits, sometimes does not. But, you know, it's very different than in New York. And I wonder if I was in New York, if I would still be bartending and still not using my studio that much. And in the 10 years I've been gone, I mean, I have made so much work. I have shown so many places. I've traveled. I've made films, I've gotten awards, I've gotten grants, um, 
been published in books. I mean, the amount of opportunities that came from um, leaving this sort of like crazy hustle of New York. But I love New York. I mean, I would live there again if the opportunities were fell into place. Um, and Detroit is even smaller. So even though Detroit's a huge city, the art community is very small there. Very few commercial galleries, very few opportunities for collectors, but for doing something like starting a new institution that can give opportunities to uh, artists and collectors and researchers and interns. And so instead of looking for the opportunities, I'm now creating a situation where I can give the opportunities, which I find very satisfying being someone that struggled and applied and applied and applied and tried to get this grant, you know, and it's hard as a woman artist, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of uh, bias out there still, even though people claim to be um, really expanding their horizons. Um, so I don't, I've never been very good at being beta in that way to being the receiver, to waiting for somebody to like my art, you know, I don't have time to do that. So I just went out, you know, very DIY, autonomous. I mean, the same way I'm, everyone's like, you're starting a museum, you know, how? And I'm like, I'm just gonna figure it out as I go along. So I'm doing the same thing with this museum and, and basically being the giver of opportunities instead of trying to seek them out. And that feels really rewarding and fabulous. And that's perfect. Yeah, the, the go-getter attitude, the ambition, I think just goes such a long way. Having said all of that, uh, do you want to screen share and start showing some of your work, talking about sure. it so people can have a chance to, to see what all we're talking about? Yes. I also just want to say one last thing is that whole notion of DIY and autonomy and, you know, being sort of a radical feminist and not listening to anyone and not down by this, I completely attribute to punk rock. And I got into punk and I went to punk shows starting at age 13 or something, mom, right? It's the first punk show. And, um, you know, hanging out with much older people that a lot of people came from nothing, you know, and seeing, you know, this whole punk rock mentality of doing things without the establishment. And now I sort of collaborate with the establishment when I feel like it. <laughs> but, you know, I still, and I encourage everybody to start things on their own and DIY and like do it yourself and find collaborators and find like minds and peers and do whatever it is you do instead of waiting for somebody trying to give you that opportunity, you make the opportunity. So I just had to give a little shout oh, out to my- Do you, do you still go to any punk shows? Is there a punk scene oh, in either of the cities? I haven't been going to punk shows since probably 1980. Right. Yeah. Maybe so, your next venture uh, can be starting a, a punk show venue. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I still go to see a lot of music and I'm still a huge music fan and a vinyl collector and friends with a lot of, um, you know, bands and DJs and stuff like that, but not punk rock. I mean, that was just sort of mid eighties. That was my coming of age moment. But on that moment, let me... So I'm going to go through these kind of quick. And um, if I'm talking too fast, just please tell me to slow down or I don't know. If, if you have questions, make a little note. I'm happy to answer anything. This is going through a number of different projects. So I will try to go through them pretty briefly. The first bunch of photos, this is my most recent film. It's called TMI. Yes, like the text abbreviation, too much information. Um, and sort of a play on that. It stands for the memory inheritance. 
Um, and I started uh, in researching the idea of inherited memory or the idea that we inherit not just DNA from our ancestors, but habits. And these can, you know, pop up, you know, like diseases or talent or whatever. Um, and so I explored this and I made a film, a single channel film in Flint and rural Texas. So filmed all in abandoned commercial buildings with various performances. This is me in a cameo. Um, so I filmed in abandoned teen nightclubs, abandoned malls, office buildings, old lumber buildings, uh, abandoned schools. This is my friend Razor, who is, uh, he did spoken word. Um, he's also a singer and a sculptor. So example of, you know, this is not the room he performed in, in the film. Um, and this is not what he was wearing either. But it's in an adjacent room in the same moment. There was a radio in the room he was playing. There's, you know, elements that tie it in. It's an old video store, um, Justin Snyder performing. So I used the same four songs throughout the film. Um, and those songs are Summertime, St. James Infirmary Blues, Amazing Grace, and Temptation. Um, so they're all sort of older songs. And I have a clip of that if you guys are curious. Um, this is another project I did called Haint. So this was a three-channel video installation. So basically what that means is you're watching three screens at the same time. So each one is about 13 feet wide. The side screens are angled and the one in the middle is flat. So it's sort of a little alcove of movie screens in the dark. Um, and they were three different productions in Texas, Detroit and Croatia. This is from Croatia. These are modern dancers I worked with. Um, and the whole project Haint is about cycles of memory, truth and monuments as a vehicle. Um, so the Inherited Memory Project is sort of evolution from this project. These three films took me six years to finish them all. It is the longest I've worked on any single, one single art piece. Um, it was totally worth it. Part of the reason was waiting for funding. It took a lot of money to make those movies. And the whole piece is about 38 minutes long. This is, um, I often cast friends and family. Uh, so this is my mother as the alchemical crone. So this was uh, filmed in the high desert in the Bradshaw Mountains where my mother had a cottage and there were devastating wildfires. And my mother actually called me and said, it's so horrible, this burnt landscape, but there's an ethereal devastating beauty to it that reminds me of your work. <laughs> Because, you know, generally pretty dark and, you know, sort of gothic. And so just like, oh, too bad you're not here. So I jumped on a plane and I filmed her um, in this character in the desert and took um, stills. So all that blackness you see after a wildfire. Um, this is the performance artist, Joseph Keckler, who is an amazing, talented uh, queer performance artist in New York City. He uh, is in opera. He's also an incredible writer. Um, and I saw him perform and was just blown away. Um, and I sought him out and asked him to play Death in, in Haint. 
Um, so his character doesn't actually have any speaking lines. He only sings German opera. We become great friends after working together. This is in Croatia. A lot of my Croatia was uh, based around these Spomeniks, brutalist monuments, buildings, and all. It, it was actually finished. The metal has since been scrapped by metal scrappers and stolen off the building. Um, and I, I filmed a lot around these controversial monuments because they're memorials to World War II. Um, and part of the film recreates memories that my father had who lived through World War II as a child in Germany. These are really fantastic structures. Um, so an example of an exhibition showing the three channel. Um, so as I said, each screen is about 13 feet wide. It's a very immersive space and the, the piece is on a loop. So it's designed that come in and watch it for five minutes and leave, or you can sit there for four hours and watch it eight times in a row. It doesn't, I mean, even though it is linear, you can still just see a piece of it and the overlapping screens create, you know, multitude of different meanings. So it's designed to, you can just see a little warp the whole thing. Um, so in the adjoining room next to the show, when I premiered the three channel, uh, you can see in the back one of the staged production stills. Um, and then I also have some sculptures. This was a bronze piece. So it's a bronze cast of an assemblage of a crutch, an enlarged wallpaper paste brush and ace bandages meant to resemble a equine, a rear equine leg. I love working in bronze. I would love to do some more. This is prince who passed away uh three years ago and i um sat shiva with him and photographed him um as a way as a way to heal and surprisingly extremely effective so i photographed prince as a way to um heal in this process um this is from one of the collaborative shows i did uh this is uh, a rug based on a cover of an omni magazine which was a uh, sort of science and sci-fi magazine in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and I changed all of the chapters and subtitles. So it's neither a rug nor a piece of art. It kind of lives in between the two worlds. I did a series called Altertagsgeschichte, which um, are photographs where I incorporated the Japanese idea of kintsugi. So kintsugi is sort of the art of, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this Japanese pottery where there's a crack or a piece breaks and they sort of glue it back together. They repair it and then they gild, they, they put gold leaf, gild the repair to sort of highlight the flaw. And the Japanese have this worldview called wabi-sabi where they believe that everything is part of, the, of something, including all the failures and flaws. So these very large photographs that were torn um, into a hidden layer of their history. So this tree in the mountains, someone had built a railroad in the 1800s and to try and make money off of the gold rush at the time. Um, and it's part of the legacy, right, of this land, this abandoned railroad. So you see all those lines. I tore the photograph and then I glued it back together and gilded it. So it's like a healing process for the land. And I did this for, with place 
people that have complicated histories. Um, and it, again, is an, a gesture of healing. Uh, this is a performance I did for something called the Fusebox Festival in Texas. It's called Magnus Retwined, where I tied the audience together as I'm playing uh, seven inch records. And everyone's sort of nervous about it until they see how much I'm struggling and suffering and then their anxiety turns to empathy. It's a very interesting piece that I've performed a few times, inspired by string mazes that my mother uh, made for me as a child on Easter. This is a collaborative book project called Divination Station uh, with one of the women, you know, I talked about the three women. So it's a fortune telling book. So the book is filled with quotes from everything from Carl Sagan to Black Sabbath. And you basically close your eyes. These are the placard or instructions. And you close your eyes and you open it to a page and you rip the page out of the book and it's your fortune and you get to take it with. So it's amazing to see um, how difficult it is for people to tear a page out of a book. It's, you know, faux pas, it's such a taboo. That's the right word, sorry, taboo. This is a series of works um, called Urgear from a shad at a gallery called Women and Their Work in 2016. I made this series of shamanistic accessories and armor of vintage sports equipment. So in there, there are football shoulder plaids, lacrosse stick, fencing mask, knee pads, hockey mask, jump rope, et cetera. This show was accompanied by a series of portraits of people that had shared a difficult part of their sexuality that they had had to overcome. I kept the stories secret, but I used what they told me and it was a gesture of healing that seems to be a recurring theme, whether I like it or not. Um, this is the artist Conan I was just talking about of people with the sculptures. So again, I don't consider these photographs. I considered them that I'm documenting people performing with my sculptures. It's another way, Rachel, to get out of the trap <laughs> or to you know work more creatively with photography. Uh, this is the filmmaker, Julia Halperin. Uh, this piece from the same show, it is called Swept Under, as in the phrase swept under the rug. It is a 10 and a half foot silicone uh, skin rug. I mean, skin like my skin rug. But basically, I modeled it after my own veins and I painted it to match um, my skin and there's horsehair on the end. And that little bump, a rubber band ball with 10 Brits about me uh, written on little pieces of paper that, you know, for the lucky collector that wants to buy this, get to do whatever they want with those secrets. So it's called Swept Under the Rug but I was really using latex and silicone um, and, to, and I made all sorts of clothing and I don't think there's any of those pictures on this series, but I made a lot of stuff out of this sort of gross thick hide um, that looked like my skin. Uh, this is a piece called Lost Vessels. Um, this is the last piece I think in my slideshow um, so this is basically an installation in the basement of the show that I curated that I said Marn was in. Uh, the show was called um, Good Morning Tis of Thee, Morning with a U, and it was about death and transformation. 
So this piece was all about intentional and unintentional burials at sea um, with everything from Egyptian objects to veteran paraphernalia to personal family objects. And then when you go all the way around the edge, other edge of the boat, there is modern day Syrian refugee belongings or what could be basically um, what I imagine to be not actual um, artifacts. Um, but at the time, you know, we were reading a lot about these boats that were capsized and people drowning in the Mediterranean, um, you know, fleeing for their lives to find a safe harbor. So I was really moved by that. And part is a light box. So here, this is a close-up of some of the objects. So half of these I made, half of them are found. Um, I work a lot with found objects. And here's a close-up of the light box, which is the exact size of my body. And there's my website. It's just my name.com. So um, that's that. I'm sorry I did talk a lot. It's hard to give information. It was great. So AlyssaTaylorWent.com. And you can always, um, you can also contact me through uh, my website. But um, I know we're about an hour, but uh, wh whoever wants to stay in, I guess, do questions or? Yeah, we have time for a couple of quick questions if anyone wants to go ahead. Um, if you, yeah, you can either chat questions or, oh, we have one question in the chat. Um, or if you want to raise your hand, you can do uh, a video question as well. Looks like we have one chat up from Okay, Leah. do I have any favorite artists? The hard question, so hard. Um, lately, I like Anselm Kiefer, who is a German artist that does sort of three-dimensional paintings. I like Joseph Boys. Neo Rauch is my favorite painter. He lives in Leipzig. He was the youngest person to ever have a solo show at the Met, but he does very, uh, he combines sort of like every painting style you can think of um, and does these very large scale, colorful, surreal paintings. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I really am influenced by a lot of filmmakers. Um, even for my regular art, yeah, filmmakers like David Lynch, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Tarkovsky, I feel like I'm forgetting someone really made it, Fassbinder, Werner Herzog. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people compare my work to Matthew Barney, but I'm not really a fan of Matthew Barney's work, but I don't, I'll take the comparison. It's fine. Um, but what's interesting about a lot of those films is their actual film work doesn't inspire me. Their personalities inspire me. I don't know how to explain that, but Werner Herzog, I mean, if you saw my films, you'd think like Werner Herzog or even Fassbin. It's more like the lives they lived and how they lived their work. They were part of their work. You cannot think of any of their work without thinking of the person. And it's... I don't know why most of my influences are men. I, I do, there are a lot of female artists that I like as well, but I think my main influences are men because the aspects of my personality are traditionally masculine. It's not so much that I gravitate men's work over female or you know women's work, but I think just my personality has always been a little masculine, you know, whatever that is, you know, cis masculine, whatever, you know, but it, this very old school idea, you know, of 
you know, I've always been into cars and guitars and this very stuff that isn't considered feminine. I mean, I'm glad that those definitions are changing now, but I guess more, if you think of it in a union way, more in touch with my animus than my anima. Anyway, so it's a really long answer to you. <laughs> All good. <laughs> yeah. Mine, you want to go ahead? Uh, my question is, where do you see the museum happening? What does the space look like? Would you originally like put it in, would it be in your house that you own there? Or are you looking for a different space? Or how does that, what is your dream space for the museum? My dream space is an old abandoned Masonic temple. Yeah. <laughs> but... No, in fact, uh, I have been seriously looking for the last two years and I actually made an offer and lost um, on a building this summer. So I am looking for anywhere from about 6,000 to 25,000 square foot historic building. So an old commercial building, it could be an old bank or a church or church is kind of difficult actually. But, you know, a fraternal hall or a convent or like a crazy building that has some history to it because we're talking about these unusual objects with this unusual history. So for me to just have it in a house doesn't say it. It should be in an unusual building with an unusual history to sort of go with the whole theme of it. So, but it's, it's hard because um, I really don't know how big this project is. It's hard to know um, before it happens. So I don't want a space that's too small, but then I don't want to have some huge space where I can't raise enough money to operate it. So right now there is a building that is 36,000 square feet, an old rehab center, but it also, but it was something before really knows it was some kind of offices administrative building kind of meeting hall brick building but you know 36,000 square feet is a is big but I'm yeah I'm thinking about this isn't going to be like a museum technology like storefront I'm talking this is going to be like a real museum like a real mm -hmm. small yeah, but uh, Detroit right now is where I'm focused on. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, if that's the perfect place. I'm not sure it is, but uh, I can't afford to do it in someplace, obviously, like New York or L.A. or something. And I have to do it someplace I want to live. So some kind of smaller city if you already have a house in Detroit. You'll have to come and, uh, I don't know, help me with it somehow, Marn. We'll have it sounds some. incredible. It, it, it does seem like the perfect marriage of your creativity and your interests and uh, just how much you're connected to the, the, you know, like it's sort of like the idea of psychedelics um, set and setting. In a way, you are, your work is always about place and then you always involve the community. So like this is like the perfect extension of all of your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We'll have to come do some um, death doula workshop special <laughs> something. Marna is also a death doula among many other things. So just any other questions, comments? I'll take uh, maybe take one more question. And then uh, after that, plug all your websites, social media, all that good stuff. Make sure you get the free promo in. Uh, any, any other questions? Anybody? Anybody? 
<laughs> if no one else has one, I can ask one more else. question. Okay. Um, well, I have one last question, which was, so one thing I was curious about uh, was why uh, you go for, I like I'm really interested in the, uh, the multi, what's it called? I totally lost my train of thought. Multi-channel. The multidisciplinary, um, or yeah, like multidisciplinary, multimedium aspect of your art. Is there a reason that you've gravitated towards that versus like focusing solely on one thing or another? I think it's just because I get bored with one thing. <laughs> and also like every medium cannot satisfy all the ideas I have, right? So sometimes, um, like this idea of inherited me, like if I was trying to do that as just a sculpture or as a performance piece, I mean, it'd be interesting, but it seems limited. Like, I feel like I'm limiting myself by forcing it into one medium. And um, I think that true creativity um, just spans all materials. Some people feel most comfortable with one medium and that's the best way they can express themselves. And that's great but I'm a complicated weirdo that needs complication, I guess. Um, so it just seems to suit my projects. And like I said, the perfect example is those photos that go with the video, that they supply sort of different things. Like the video is sort of this thing you can meditate on and it's sort of overwhelming and very symbolic. And I photograph and look at for a longer time or go back to, or just, narrow your focus down, you know, and the sculptures are sort of tangible, you know, objects. Because I people also, the same way that I need different ways to express myself, people need ways to take in information. I mean, right? Because we all, like, we watch movies, we read books. Imagine if you just read books or if you just did sports or whatever, you know, I mean, you kind of have sort of, a, it's a very myopic, uh, view of the world. And I think like the best way we can get a global understanding of each other is to broaden our horizons, even if you have to sort of force yourself to do that. So I, I feel like it also invites a bigger audience, you know, invites more, you know, more portals of access. Definitely. I think it also just makes your work really, really unique. And like you say, it's, it's great to like be able to showcase, showcase all your ideas through a whole bunch of different, different mediums. Um, I think we're about set to wrap up. If you want to, like I said, plug any social media, websites, all that good stuff, do that. And then uh, I think that's about the time we have. Thanks. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. And mm -hmm. um, you guys feel free to reach out. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook and all the stuff. I don't tweet. No tweets. Trump really. You don't either. We what? Rachel, should I tell them a story about about our Twitter? Yeah, I so on Twitter. I don't know how to use it. So we we have uh, our account on Twitter, Spark NEU, and we never use it. And I was on the Twitter the other day, logged in, and I noticed that we had a message from three years ago from Northeastern's official account asking if we wanted to meet with the president of the university and we hadn't seen it until three years later uh when we found this out so we still we still need to follow up on that um, <laughs> but it was also funny that we weren't even an official club back then we were like pretty underground just kind of like a group of students i mean i wasn't there then but um yeah <laughs>
In my defense, I also was not in Spark That's yet. That's true. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can definitely blame other people, but yeah. We, we like someone else is not here. <laughs> but yeah, thank you again. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. Um, and everyone Thanks has a nice night. Me. Good to see you all. Thank you thank so much. You. Bye. Bye.